0: Welcome back. Ladies, gentlemen, everybody, to Big Noises from Media Voices. This is actually the final episode of our Big Noises series, in which we have spoken to some of the most explosive and interesting people in media who have been coming to you unfiltered through the medium of podcasting. So I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Peter Houston. And Peter, who is the very last guest on this first season of Big Noises. I spoke to Stuart Forrest.
1: Um, Stuart is currently the global SEO director at Bauer Media. He's been there for a couple of months now, <laughs> but previously he's been at everyone. He's been he was at Future and he was at Immediate and he was at Haymarket and, and... he was at Centaur <laughs> and he was at Email. I said to him, if we were playing magazine top trumps, he would definitely <laughs> win. He's mm.
0: he's been a lot of different big UK publishers. I was going to say, as he has like wheeled his way through that entire media ecosystem, he has picked up a lot of expertise, not just in terms of advertising or platforms or audiences, but basically this holistic look at what is good and bad, I suppose, about UK media.
1: Yeah, definitely, and I think you know one of the things, one of the things he talked about was the idea of not necessarily having expertise in a business, but having experts, which is I know Mm. is you know we could dancing on the head of a pin there in some ways but <laughs> it's that idea that there's people that really know what's going on and they might not necessarily work for you you might bring them in as a consultant or whatever but it's actually figuring out people that know stuff that <laughs> normal people <laughs> that normal people don't know particularly around things like uh um search engine
0: optimization and... uh, don't know and don't want to know in a lot of cases so what did you yeah what did you see it talk about
1: well we talked about his his career through these different companies and what was common to them and um I think one of the things that he said over the kind of last whatever as 10 15 years he sees some kind of clarity developing in terms of how people get online audiences um the issue, as always, is that the platform's change the rules. What? And uh, we're all left going, how do we fix this? And traffic disappears. And I guess he's seen that more than most, that idea that you wake up one morning and <laughs> half your traffic's gone. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he, he talked about the, the, the kind of growth strategies that used to work that maybe don't work anymore. And as always, anyone that ever talks about platforms talks about over-reliance on platform strategies. Um, So that idea that it's what we talk about in revenue terms, but it's the same thing. Your audience development strategies should be diversified. It should be, you should be getting people come from all sorts of different places, um, whether that's social, whether that's search, whether that's direct because of your trusted brand just build it all together and not <laughs> not basically over rely on yeah. what kind of mood Mr Zuckerberg or, uh, I I'm not no. even talking about the other one
0: yet. I was going to say like, looking at what has happened over the past couple of years, who would ever put all their eggs in a basket held by one of those clowns
1: the, the best one recently is Twitter talking about sorry, X, X. talking about um, creating a payment sort of system that people would would work with uh, through twat on who the hell would give that, Trust that yeah. their money did you All see that,
0: that x that he's put on a on the hq that massive no. glowing x no. so he's installed the brightest strobing x directly on the top of the building <laughs> without getting permits without checking that it was like fine with the neighbors and i've seen people calling it the twat signal which is just amazing <laughs> 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 so platforms publishers as and there's something else in there, which is saw in the transcript, which is his, I suppose, definition of clickable versus that term clickbait. Because everything gets described as clickbait now, regardless yeah. of sort of what it is or actually whether it fulfills those criteria.
1: Yeah, again, that brings it back to value, doesn't it? It brings it back to mm-hmm. content being worth something. Uh, clickbait, certainly the way Stuart was talking about it. I think the way we've talked about it in the past is that idea that there's nothing behind it. Yeah. Um, whereas what he was saying is that if you're writing headlines that are clickable then people will go and they'll be delighted by what you see on the other side Um, whether that's you know whether that's reviews that are product finders or whether that's just straight up journalism it's actually delivering on the promise of the headline i think that's a i'm not saying that's a shift but it's interesting to hear that that kind of codified rather than, I'm not going to mention any newspaper publishers, um, <laughs> Reach, um, mm. that, that are still on the clickbait trail. They're still ramming that stuff through. Again, you know, Stuart mentioned this. How come they do so well? How come Reach does so well in SEO when the content is not always fantastic? Mm-hmm. And I suppose that goes back to the experts thing. They must have got the right people in to do their SEO. Um, but I think the other thing is that, and it was interesting to hear an SEO person talking about, I mean, of course we got on AI, right? Of course we did, because anyone that talks about search is going to talk about AI. But well, anyone in publishing is going to talk about AI. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was interesting to hear someone who's been so focused in their career on platform distribution and SEO talking about trusted brands. Mm. And again, that's not that for me is encouraging. Um,
0: did, that reminds me. Did you hear about Globo? <laughs> no. <there laughs> right. Was. Okay. This goes back to AI and trust and we'll spin through it quickly. Um, so people people are fighting back against AI, you know, generated websites that are scraping posts for content and then just, you know, automatically churning out article after article after article.
1: Like just for ads.
0: Yeah, exactly. The way that the World of Warcraft, the game community, came up with it is they posted endlessly on the subreddit about a, a character called Globo. <laughs> completely made up character that was about to get like added into the game allegedly, and all of a sudden, all these websites that just rely on using AI to scrape and then create articles based on this were suddenly publishing who is Globo, when is Globo coming to the game, and it really showed up like who is a trusted brand online and who was just doing it for the ad revenue. That
1: could be a, a, a universal strategy to mess mm-hmm. with
0: with AI. It's like um, what were those? I think, I think they were called trap streets. And they were put on old maps so that if somebody copied your map, All right. then people would know that they'd cop- they'd copied your map because there's a fake street on there. So it's it's effectively trap-streeting for the digital age. It's globoing.
1: <laughs> That's such a great phrase, trap-streeting.
0: Yeah, yeah isn't it?
1: Mm. Well, I mean, Stuart was pretty optimistic about AI in a, in a, in a high-level sense. He says it's going to be a lot of pain for a lot of people. But oh, yeah. in a high-level sense, he said that if publishers can get their head around using the tools, then it will make life easier, which I thought was an interesting take that we've maybe not had yet.
0: Hey, Speaking of tools to make your life easier, we would like to say a big thanks to Glide Publishing Platform for their support for this episode and for the entire Big Noises series. They've been a fantastic partner for us. If you don't know them yet, it's a content management system for publishers, which means you don't need to get involved with software, having to spend your time and money reinventing your CMS over and over and over again. They do all the content management for publishers of all sizes. There's no need to get roped into building any of the back end stuff. You can just use their cloud services and away you go. So if you wanna know more, have a look at GPP.io. Give them a check, and thanks again to Glide Publishing Platform for their support for the entire Big Noises series.
1: Yeah, it's been amazing. Thank you. Um, I, I know we're doing this partly because, or not partly because Esther's not here to keep us in line. <laughs> um, she's got more important stuff to be dealing with right now. But um, it's been fun. It's been it's been interesting. Just kind of digging into some of these issues slightly longer interviews um people that uh, we m- wouldn't necessarily talk to sometimes i and, I've, yeah. I've
0: enjoyed it uh, it's been brilliant <laughs> nice well speaking of brilliant then how did you introduce Stuart? what did you begin by asking him Well, oh, this is the last time i'm gonna say it. It's... i know end of an interview.
1: actually maybe not we, we have got a bonus episode lined up for october november well so i absolutely started by asking Stuart about the stellar career he's had at all these different UK publishers. And he gives a brief overview of his current role at Bower.
2: Well, I've had my whole career in media. I've I've always worked in media businesses. Um, Initially, because I didn't really know what to do with my history degree from a mid-ranking university in the mid-90s. And so, like many people, I uh, was unable to resist the lure of a media sales uh, three by one panel ad in the back of the Guardian. <laughs> and, um, and so actually my first job w- was, at, um, EMAP. So, um, sort of what is now part, you know, somewhere yeah. deep in, in the Bauer corporate structure is, is obviously the end of what was, what was the uh, tail end of an EMAP. And I was selling ads in B2B, uh, did that for a couple of years, moved into B2C, um, spent a long time in, um, automotive magazine publishing at haymarket so worked on you know brands like what car and auto car initially in sales roles and then moved into a publishing role um i mean it's funny isn't it publishing as a job title doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. to anybody outside of media it's like it's one of those jobs that you you know your mum doesn't really know what you do but really what i was doing was running brands running P and Ls, and i guess i've been fully digital i think certainly for more than 15 years if not 20 years. So um, when I was at Haymarket, we acquired um, a website called Heads, and I worked very closely on that acquisition. And I ran that brand from acquisition to when I left um, Haymarket. And that was really good fun. You know, it's totally different to the traditional model at the time where, most of your audience came from content that you had published. Pistonheads was very different because it had a really, really big and active forum community of really? all these sort of slightly odd middle-aged IT contractors yeah. who owned TVRs. And it also had a big classifieds platform. So its rivals weren't really Autocar or Watcar. They were more what? like Autotrader. tvr TVR? TVR... Um, it sort of went bust in a, mm-hmm. in a, in a puff of fiberglass smoke. Um, used to be quite and exciting
1: been, when you saw one of those
2: puffs yeah, by. Yeah. Yeah, but what, what the thing is with TVRs, you normally pass them because they had some. <laughs> Critical failure that left them <laughs> by the side of the road, but yeah, they were they were exciting. So so Pistonheads was brilliant because we you know we spent all of our time nurturing communities of people and thinking about how we would get volumes. You know, it was it was the sort of I think it's Pareto's law. It always is Pareto's law. But eighty percent of our impressions came from twenty percent of our content, yeah. which was the forum and the you know and it flipped the model on its head. So that was really interesting and taught me a lot. I left Haymarket in two thousand thirteen, had a couple of years consulting. So I, I went straight from Pistonheads to working for Justine at Mumsnet. Um, Really, I mean, you know, Pistonheads and Mumsnet have got very little in common. And she ended up working for Justine because one afternoon, some of the more rabid sort of slightly fathers for justice corner of the Pistonheads community decided very ill-advisedly to stage an invasion of Mumsnet. And that's how I got to know Justine. And so I, I went to work for her and helped her on business development stuff. And that was really, really interesting. Um, and then in 2014, I went to immediate media. Um, I... Uh yeah, um, I, you know, if you sort of think back that far, immediate media was a brand-new company then. It had been yeah. formed out of the rump of the BBC brands you know private equity backed this sort of quite small publishing company led by tom bureau that's sort of reversed into the behemoth that is radio times publishing gardens world under license and then much later on um owning the bbc good food brand and that was really interesting i really loved that and i, and I actually went in on a maternity cover contract but ended up staying for nearly eight years <laughs> um and I, and I absolutely loved it i thought you know immediate media was was and i think remains a really exciting place to work um tom and joe and duncan and the rest of the team sort because it was a brand new company and a very big company that had come from so many different corners, they had to put a huge amount of effort, very successfully, I think, into, into sort of defining and then engineering this this brand new culture for a magazine company, a magazine and website company. And it's just a brilliant place to work. You know, really, really creative people, full of lots of ex-BBC people, amazing brands like Radio Times, um, Gardens World, you know, real real well-known recognisable household names and my role there was to build the digital business on Radio Times so to, so to grow that that um, business and had you know, a huge amount of fun doing it and it was my last brand P&L job I, I kind of um, so the reason I sort of fell into doing what I do now really was I had seen the value on Radio Times of putting resource into some of those Digital specialist skills that publishers could really benefit from, so um, audience development and SEO, and also um, commerce content, and I, could, you know, that was a that really really helped to supercharge the growth of Radio Times, and so I moved from running Radio Times into a brand new central role, basically trying to bring those skills to the rest of the business because at that point at Immediate you kind of had them more by luck than judgment. So if as a publisher you'd seen fit to invest in it, you did really really well, but a brand like Gardener's World hadn't particularly, and so it was massively underperforming forming in search. And so I had a really good time for the next couple of years building this central capability that I remember clearly on day one was literally just me. And then by the time I left immediate media in 2021, it was, I think, 35, maybe 40 people. So working on technical SEO, audience development, um, audience data, and also we, we built a really, really big um, content commerce Function, so working, you know, working very closely with journalists, working very, very closely with the brand teams. And so I suppose uh, what, where, you know, what I learned from that is. You know, that ability to operate kind of where the specialist practitioners and the brand meet, you know, there's, there's, there's some, there's some healthy tension in those two roles and there should be, um, one of the many tensions that sort of makes publishing work. But I found that I really enjoyed it. And I think my experience of working with, with content teams and brand teams on publications and kind of getting to know how media works and some of those kind of unwritten rules about how it operates and almost functioning as the translator between yeah. those teams yeah. and then specialist practitioners. Yeah. And I think if you, can, if you can make that work well, that's where the magic really, really happens. Um, and so that's what I do. So I'm now, um, so I went from immediate media to future in a new role as audience operations director. So technical SEO, training, data. Um, as often happens at future, things move really, really fast. So my role changed quite quickly and um, ended up as SVP, um, global SVP of audience. So a much broader remit. Um, Brilliant. And, you know, loved working at Future. Um, They say that Future years are like dog years. So I was there for sort of um, 20 20 months, I think, but probably, you know, five years worth of experience easily. Um, And then I left Future early this year. Um, had a short break. And now I am a couple of months into my new role as global SEO director at Bauer. So my job is really, as I said, to sort of sit with one foot in the brands and one foot in the practitioners and make sure they're working really, really well together. Um, and, and so I spend a lot of my time. Uh, it's a global role. So I'm working with colleagues in Germany and in the UK, which is really, really interesting. I think Bauer a bit of a it's not one of the it's not one of the publishing companies that you hear a lot about, but actually if you if you look closely at Bauer, got some absolutely incredible brands, yeah. at an enormous scale, um, but it's a business that has been up until fairly recently quite content to let its print revenue. Um, um, drive a lot of its activity and, 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 and there's a, there's now a huge agenda for change at Bauer, which I'm really enjoying being part of. So, you know, really bright, new, young digital leadership team. Um, I don't put myself in that young category, by the way. Um, but, um, and so that, so they're, you know, they're running really, really fast to catch up and I'm, and I'm really enjoying it because there's got some immensely bright people, amazing brands doing really, really good stuff. And my job is really to drive excellence in the the content and the um, SEO Practitioning across the business.
1: So looking back across what is a fairly impressive collection of UK Publishing brands and international brands now, what's... What's the thread that runs through them? What what do they need to fix? What are they doing well? I, don't, I mean, I'm, and I'm not looking for you to diss on anyone or to say, oh, these no, guys no, are no. crap, or these guys are great. Really, just that, I, I'm looking more at an overview rather than individual performance.
2: I think uh, that's a good question. Um, I think the challenges are fundamentally the same, aren't they, for all of them? They're, they're all grappling with the same challenges. I think the differences between them is really how they go about tackling those challenges and sort of what, what they spend their time doing. Um, and, um, you know, so the, the challenges are fundamentally, you know, the, as, as old as the hills in, in, in the media business, which is how do you go and find an audience? How do, you, how do you solve the problems that they need solving? And how do you make money from it? So they've all got the same problems. I think the differences are really in the extent to which those businesses spend their time thinking about the strategy or thinking about the operations. So, you know, future's clear strength, the reason why it's able to move so fast and has been able to grow so fast is that it's excellent operational execution. It's just really, really good at that, right? You know, it, it, it's, it has a playbook. It has a playbook for everything and it, and it executes that playbook incredibly well. And the whole business is really geared around operational ex- execution. And, and then it goes and finds businesses which it can apply that model to. So that taught me in a short period of time you know, how to really up my game operationally um, and how to get a lot of stuff done really, really fast. Um, Whereas some other publishing companies have spent, while I've been there, have spent a bit more time thinking about the strategy rather than the execution. Um, I sometimes wonder whether that's partly uh specific to the era you know so so digital as a as a as a channel has matured immensely over the last 10 years hasn't it so you know maybe 10 years ago some of the conventions that are now set weren't in place and so we spent a lot more time thinking about those conventions um but i'm not in those companies anymore so i can't tell you whether that's now how they operate
1: you know i remember there's this night i think it was tow center that this uh, this graphic on the u.s newspapers and all the social channels that they were on and it was something like 15 16 social yeah. channels yeah and we thought okay well that's how we get scale and clearly that's nonsense it's all gone to shit basically from a social yeah. point of well i'm saying it has has it um, that's my question for you is do we still have a social strategy or a platform strategy
2: yeah, I mean, I think, oh, that, uh, you know, the, the expression don't build your house on someone else's land is easy to say for publishers, isn't it? But, but the reality is that to one degree or another, we, d- we do depend on other people's land for our reach. So I think that you know we we can't really um, unless you are a mega brand like the FT where you've you know where you've got so much brand recognition that people do come straight to you and you're not really dependent on on other platforms. But but even then I I don't think it's true to say we are we are reliant on those platforms to one degree or another and we have to play with them and we have to engage with them. Um, So I think yeah it's definitely you know it's atomized and it's. Hasn't it? If you look over the last 10 years, there have been periods where it's atomized massively and then there's been a bit of consolidation, there's been a bit more clarity where the audience is going to come from. Um, I think that the fundamental challenge hasn't changed for publishers, which is we have to really approach these platforms with a healthy degree of skepticism. Um, probably never being prepared to to believe that the way we operate with those platforms is set in perpetuity. You know, we we don't ever talk about how we distribute magazines, particularly right. The conventions don't really change. We don't really ever talk about whether the front page is where we're going to put our front cover lines, and then you turn the page and you go in. But we we do spend a lot of time thinking about the, the container for our content digitally mm-hmm. and how we're going to distribute it because some of those conventions aren't set. So I think that publishers have to maintain that high that you know that that skepticism and also this sense that. Yes, it's working right now in the moment, but that any any moment it could all change again, and we have to be prepared for that change. Um, you think it is still working? Is it still working? I, th- I think I think uh, there is still very much a route for it to work. I don't think it's universally the case that it's working for everybody. No, I mean, if, you know, Christ, what was it? Reach just yesterday put out a profit warning, didn't they? C- citing 16% 16% drop in. I, I wrote it down. 16% drop in ad revenue, and they were blaming the fact that Facebook had. Yeah. Um, you know, pivoted again on their algorithm and how much traffic they're going to send to publishers. And if you looked at the number on digital ad revenue versus print ad revenue, print was down 2%. The digital was down by a much, much bigger margin. So they blame that squarely on Facebook. So, um, so I don't. I think I think there is a recipe that will work right now. Yes, but but does it mean that that same recipe is going to work next week, or or in six months' time, or or in a year? I think if you go about life in digital media believing that, then you're not going to survive very long. So I think you have to be ready for change perpetually, and you have to be looking at what's coming over the horizon. And and I think crucially, you have to be listening. Um, I, I think Google. People often talk about Google as you know, pivoting constantly and constantly changing what it wants from publishers. I've never bought that idea. Actually, I think Google are very good at signaling at some distance out the direction of travel and giving publishers and players and people who are using Google a pretty long, you know, landing ramp to actually change the way they're working. I don't don't think Google really surprises people. I think if you're surprised by Google, then you haven't been listening. Um, because what it tends to do, whether that's on whether it's on things like content quality or speed and performance, is it starts talking to you a couple of years out, and saying this is going to become more important, and this is how we're going to start making it more important, and eventually it makes it part of the core algorithm. If you've not been listening or changed your approach in that time, then more for you. Um,
1: is that about having people that are able to listen? Is yeah. that about expertise?
2: I, th- I think it's about having the experts in the business that can listen and can interpret. And I think it's also about having a culture and a way of working, which means that you can adopt those changes and respond to them because, you know, these things aren't often things, you know, the, I'm fond of the oil tanker analogy yeah. where it comes to SEO. You know, it does, it does take a lot of inputs. Very often seos kind of get called in when the boat has hit the lighthouse and there's crude oil pissing out and there's seabirds covered in fairy liquid whereas i'd far rather we were on the bridge with the captain in the first place putting the inputs into the steering wheel so that we don't hit the lighthouse um but you've got to be able to think reasonably long range for that to happen
1: without bagging on reach which we do way too often (laughs) um i mean that drop in revenue can't be a surprise right can it
2: uh, I don't know. I'm not, I don't work at Reach. I, I mean, I personally, you know, I think, was when was it, 2017? And I'm showing my age now. And I was, I, was, I was running Radio Times at the time. 2017 was probably the first moment where publishers went from probably enjoying something like, you know, depending on who you were, 40 to 60% of their referral traffic from Facebook specifically. And it dropped like a stone overnight. I remember it very clearly on Radio Times. If you're still running a business which is that dependent on Facebook, yep. you know, eight years later, then then I think you need to diversify your audience strategy. Um But it's really it's really easy to say that outside of a business, and when you're in it and running it, and you know, I think probably particularly for news publishers rather than special interest content publishers, there has been that traffic for longer. But it's clear that you know it's going to come to an end at some point. Just so think, let
1: go back to your oil tanker analogy. Uh, I've, change that to a Titanic analogy. Do you think that just people are just enjoying the fact that they're on this big luxury liner and it's going fast and things are working and no one's paying attention to these icebergs?
2: Yeah, and I, I think that's the key point. You know, um, some of the conventions around... We've we got good at publishing... For, for Facebook, haven't we, as a business. It's kind of become, you know, I was thinking back, you know, what, where, where were we 10 years ago? 10 years ago, we, w- we were establishing the conventions. We were playing around with it. We were working around, you know, we were working out what thing, you know, what sort of headline treatments worked well. We were all on Twitter. Media people were on Twitter okay. and really hoping that eventually Twitter would sort of find the people that we knew we had to reach but probably putting more effort into it than we deserved. 10 years on, Twitter's an awful bonfire of of some of the worst dregs of humanity and we'd rather our audience weren't here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the risk for publishers is that you become too driven by those conventions and that you don't actually step back and say, why are we doing this? We're doing it. It's very easy to sort of set journalists doing something and let them carry on doing it in perpetuity. But then you can get bitten as reach did when suddenly there's a, there's a change. Um, and I, my personal feeling is you should approach all platforms with, with purpose and with care. Um, and a healthy sense of suspicion and, and fear and, you know, your glass is not half full. Your glass is half empty and it might roll off the table at any point and yeah. you might cut your foot open on it. Um, and I think if you don't do that, then you then you can be caught. But, you know, there are plenty of examples of publishers that are very successfully able to predict those waves and, you know, either either reduce their risk or, or diversify in, a, in, in time. That's not one of them. Is there a big difference
1: between... You know, talked about Google and Google's signal and where it's going fairly far out. Is there a big difference there between the likes of Google and Facebook or some of the newer platforms, TikTok or Instagram or whatever?
2: Yeah, I I think so. I mean I think you know, some of the newer platforms, TikTok and Instagram, have, have, have never been about saying the business model you're going to drive with us is about referral traffic. They've never said that. It's never been part of the mix. So publishers have always had to find ways of monetizing that attention that they can get with their content on those platforms in a different and creative way and i think i think you know it probably means that there are less opportunities to drive revenue but they're there for the right publishers um for me i think google has and i hope hopefully i'm not being excessively optimistic i'm never excessively optimistic but hopefully i'm not being here google has always felt on the sort of enemy to friend scale probably more like a friend for a longer period of time Mm -hmm. for publishers than Meta has Um, personally you know Google's Google's you know even even with SGE rollout you know Google are being quite explicit in saying to publishers of course we're going to carry on sending links to you you know you had you had Barry Adams on a few weeks ago mm-hmm. he was making this point wasn't he that that he didn't believe it was a doomsday scenario for publishers and I think you know the optimist in me probably has to think that whereas I've not been that optimistic about Facebook and Meta for for, for nearly ten years because because it's just felt really clear to me that what publishers bring to Facebook is the context that helps drive value in their ad business. And the value exchange is really clear, which is that in return for that context, you're going to give us traffic we can monetize. And as soon as that value exchange is upside down, which it has been, you know, progressively happening from 2017, I think you should question why you're doing it. Why, you know, why on earth would you be bringing that context to that platform mm. where you've got less and less hope of bringing any any of it off in a way that can be meaningfully monetized?
1: So, what does a sensible strategy look like? A sensible audience strategy that's taken in search and social.
2: I think so I'd add a third tier to that, which is which is email. Uh-huh, great. So so and look, this is not particularly revelatory, but I'd see certainly search and and to a much lesser extent social as the top of funnel and, you know, the way of reaching people. And, you know, you can't escape the fact that it is it is hardwired into human beings that when they want to go looking for something. They're going to go to one of those big platforms. So and certain types of query work best on on some types of platforms and and certain types um, work best on others. Um, but, you're, you know, Facebook and sorry, search and to a lesser extent social is your top of funnel. And then I think what publishers have really got to focus on and not enough of them are doing it well enough, in my view, is is how do you deliver ROI on that on that initial reach by by getting those people to, to, to have a direct relationship with you as much as possible? And there's a number of ways of measuring that. You know, it could be brand searches on, on, on Google. You know, if people are just going to go by default to Google, then, then look at developing your brand search traffic. But I think that there are – you know the, the publishing business models that really excite me are the ones where people succeed in reaching people via search and then do such a great job of solving the problem that somebody's prepared to have that direct relationship with you via newsletter. There's a business we bought at Future um, last year called Who, What, Where. It's an L.A.-based fashion business with a U.K. arm. It's a really, really – Really interesting business because, um, and, and you feature public with these numbers that was in the um, investor um, events last year. Unlike most publishing businesses, I think Who What Wears traffic from search is around forty percent of total traffic, and forty percent of it is from newsletter. They've got a really interesting and diverse audience strategy that's using those different channels really effectively. So if you look at who, what, where, which is a fashion business, LA based fashion content business that future bought in 2021. It's a really interesting business, a very different to a lot of publishing businesses because, you know, unlike many publishing businesses where 60 or 80% or more of traffic is coming from Google, who, what, where, and they're public on these numbers, I think it's around 40% search, 40% email. And, the reason why that works is that if I'm trying to buy a laptop or a car, I'm going to probably make that purchase once or twice a decade, right? I do it infrequently, and the publishing company needs to make sure that when that happens, you are there in search because that's likely to be the channel that I'm going to go to to make that purchase. And you're there to help me in the moment, and then I'm probably going to go away again and not and not um, engage with your brand. Whereas if I am into fashion, and as we sit here in our two, you know, matching black T-shirts and, and <laughs> white beards, noticed, <laughs> I'd the guess that neither of us is that into fashion. But people who are, you're perpetually prepared to spend money on fashion, Right. Um, I'm a cyclist. I can always be talked into spending money on cycling, even if I haven't got that need. And so the, the, the nature of your relationship with, with that consumer who's more of an enthusiast as a publisher has got to be different. You've got to be having that constant dialogue with them because you can you can nudge somebody into a transaction with inspiration rather than problem solution. You know, it's the old, am I solving a pain or am I creating a gain for you as a consumer? And so Who What Where has done a really brilliant job with its email strategy. You know, It reaches people first off via search but then it presents this newsletter program which is just brilliant you know if you look at the way they execute their their um, subject lines it's really really good stuff um it's really engaging and it and it works it really really works
1: so what i'm what i'm thinking there is i'm contrasting what you've just said with the clickbait yeah. approach, which yeah, is yeah, all about yeah. driving traffic, you know, you yeah. won't believe what happened next kind of yeah, headline. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I, I was d- doing some training for our editors on Google Discover last week, and the, and, the, and the phrase we use is, you know, it needs to be clickable, not clickbait, right? So, so, so the content must be engaging and entertaining and solve a problem and solve a need and be different. And it's fine to make that headline clickable. Right. But there's a there's a nuanced difference between clickable because it's interesting and clickbait because it's promising something it doesn't deliver on when you get there. And, and I think, you know, if you're we, we probably were driven in that direction um, by that sort of never ending quest for reach, you know, partic- particularly when publishing businesses were dominated by digital advertising, which was sort of felt like a sort of a race to the bottom on volume. Um, yeah, we we did. But I think I think those days are gone or going and more enlightened publishers are trying to produce quality content that is genuinely entertaining and different partly because that's what Google wants, right? You know, we've, we've not talked that much about Google search, but the, you know, the, the direction of travel for Google's algorithm over the last 10 years has been more and more towards quality. And I think it's getting yeah. better and better at distinguishing between genuinely good quality and content, which is, which is not so good.
1: You came kind of at the beginning of that journey with Boa you've been yeah. there for what almost two months yeah and you mentioned earlier that bauer was kind of heavy on print in the past and one of the things that i've always found interesting about bauer is that they, they've like you said they weren't well known as a publishing company but their publishing brands are well known
2: yeah yeah yeah
1: does that change things as you, as you go into that you're not you don't want particularly bauer to be found in a search you want I don't know. Oh yeah, Empire absolutely. or whatever yeah. it
2: is. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But that's the same for all publishing companies. You know, we, we um, th- there are very few, certainly multi-brand publishing companies where the consumers are expected to know who that company is. You know, consumers of future or Media media don't really know. You, know just, you, you don't identify a transactional relationship with with immediate media. You are a subscriber to Radio Times or just Garden Just geeks well. like
1: Isaac secure about that stuff. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. Um, so, um, but I think. Uh, yeah, so, so it's, it's absolutely not about the publishing company. I, I meant more that Bauer isn't a company that is particularly talked about in our yeah, little yeah, you yeah. Know, introspective world of media because because it's a privately owned business and it probably doesn't need to court publicity. It's not really thinking about a shareholder um, in, in the same way that public companies are.
1: So does that then throw you back to brand recognition rather than even clickable but definitely clickbait? The idea that people see, oh my God, this is an article from this title.
2: Yeah, well, we already know that that brand recognition makes a difference in the SERP. You know, so if you look at, um, I, I, you know, um, so my experience of working on household names like Gardeners World, for example, or BBC Good Food, absolutely that drives click-through rate in the SERP. You know, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're searching for how to grow tomatoes and you see five results at the top of the SERP and, sorry, search engine results page, I yeah. should say, for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, um, and, wh- and one of them is Gardens World. Well, Gardens World's on the telly on a Friday night and it's a magazine on the newsstand. So you just got that inherent trust. So I actually think the direction of travel for search and with Google... You know, being very clear and public in saying that it's going to start or or is rewarding genuine quality content, which is written for users and not for search engines. I feel really optimistic about what that means for quality publishing companies. Because I think that, you know, we have these amazing assets, you know, these, these deep content archives. We have this, um, skill set that, that either works all on print or all on digital or a blend of the two. I think we're really well placed to win in search. I, th- I think, I think that we, um, you know, we have that quality, that inherent quality and provided that we're not making any sort of basic mistakes in how we're presenting that to Google and allowing it to see it. The game is absolutely now about the quality of the content rather than sort of writing in a way which feels unnatural yeah. to editors. You know, I, I, I did a briefing for our editors a couple of weeks ago, and, and, um, and the language I was using in that was, when you're writing this article, the test is, would I email this to a friend? Right? If I had a friend who needed to solve this problem, would I write an email to that person solving that problem for them in the way that I'm writing this? If you're not, then you shouldn't be writing it.
1: Okay, so now I'm going to test your optimism to destruction. <laughs>
2: You mentioned AI. I'm not letting yeah. that slide. You can't. You can't be in a media podcast now without talking <laughs> about AI, can you? It's in the rules. Well, how
1: does how does that brand recognition work when Bard and Bing and everything else is just stripping that content and displaying it? You know, without necessarily- yeah.
2: I mean that that is where I don't feel that optimistic. You know, I, th- I think um yeah. You know, look, that landscape is changing super fast. It's going to have changed between recording this and it going out. Um, and I think that what you tend to read about, you know, being and search generative experience and all those experiments is the sort of downside of those experiments where people are spotting the stuff that's not good. And, and, and you know, there are, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of examples where it's not good. They get it wrong. Um, <laughs> cause it's a fairly dumb way to, isn't it? Ultimately mm. underneath it all. Um, but you kind of, you know, it's, it's not going away. Uh, it's, it, it It is an experiment, and they are building on it, and it is going to get cleverer and smarter um, but I do worry about that you know I, th- I think that for publishers in general, over the last ten years. As what has appeared in the search engine results page has become more and more complex and less about 10 blue links and more about various other search features. There have been many moments along the way where the business model for publishers of create content, get it to rank, get the click, solve the user's problem and monetize it has been challenged. And some, some are right. You know, the, the old adage about, you know, you ever heard the story about the Celebrity Heights website? You know, Guy, Guy built guy built a, a massive advertising business based on a website which answered one question which is how tall is right? So, <laughs> you know, how tall is Tom Cruise um, that is a website that has had its business completely decimated literally by Google saying I don't need to send a user to the site yep. to, you know, if you ask me how tall is Tom Cruise I'm going to say he's 5 foot 7 hmm. um, but that's not a stable publishing business right? you never build a magazine based on, on answering that single query um, and so publishers have to find the niche that Google can't deal with in the SERP and that they can send you to to solve. And I think that AI in the SERP starts to question that. You know, where Google is, is trying to solve the problem of how to buy a laptop by um, aggregating content from a number of different sources and, and often doing it badly. Um, I think that's a, that's a real problem, a real risk. I don't, I don't yet know what the answer is. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm working pretty closely with PPA's got a really good working group on AI and, and they're starting to, they're starting to think about, you know, firstly, how, how should we be talking to the platforms? How should we be lobbying the platforms? You know, let's make sure we have a seat at the table if governments are starting to think about legislation about this sort of thing. But then on a more practical basis, Let's lean into the power of that collective of publishers and start thinking about knowledge sharing and, and how you know what what are good practices, what are, what are some of the conventions that will be established. But yeah, I do I do think um, AI and ML, where it affects the consumer experience in search, is is where it's a risk. In, in lots of other areas, I think I feel really optimistic about it. I think it's really really interesting. you think
1: it just puts pressure on publishers to be in other platforms like newsletters you mentioned before.
2: Yeah, I think it does. I think it does but i also think that um you know, I mean, AI has been here for, te- you know, it's not, yeah, we're, we're talking no, about it so it. much now, but it's been around, you know, Google's been, Google's had an increasingly AI and ML driven algorithm over the last 10 years. Um, and that's made it much more challenging for publishers and, 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 and change is happening faster. And um, But ultimately, I think it will be good for, con- for, for good content quality publishers because it's becoming harder to fool Google. It's becoming harder to, to rank with crap content. Yeah. And, and that's ultimately good for us, provided that we're not trying to run our business, businesses in the way that our sort of cheaper challenges have come along in the past you know you, you, you start start running a as, a as a big quality publishing company if you start structuring your cost base around cheap clickbait then you're going to get bitten but but fortunately most of the big players haven't done that um I think the other the other side of AI and ML for me which I think is fascinating is that sort of exoskeleton that it gives us in the way we work. Um you know not necessarily what somebody sees on the page but how we get to that finished product. That's really really interesting and appealing to me. I and mean, I I went down a rabbit hole late last night because one of our sites which I started working on just after I joined which was a bit broken has apparently you know it's 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 now fixed so a lot of the stuff that we've done to fix it is now starting to work. So I've got this massive change in data that I'm, I'm working with and I just chucked a couple of CSV files at chat GPT last night and I'm not joking in 25 minutes. I had some amazing data visualizations of exactly what's improved and what hasn't. That would have been a day or two of work with me talking to an analyst. So that sort of ability to not spend your time working on the process and spend your time thinking about you know, what it means and what um, and how our behavior needs to change. I, I find that fascinating, really, really liberating. It's, uh, Do you think it's a great view. Again, food? that's
1: publishers bringing a short-term view. So we look at it and we know that we need search traffic and we freak out because we think Bing or Bard or whatever is going to steal our traffic. But actually, we should be looking at it as, okay, that's one side of the problem and we need to deal with that. But actually, there's all this other stuff which is going to make us better at being... yeah more recognizable, more brand aware, whatever. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I totally do. I think you know, if, if you sort of sat down and listed all the stuff we do all day as publishers um, that goes into the content that's actually written and, and shown to a user, thinking about how you can use um, large language models and some of the other tools to, to get better and faster and more effective at those processes has got to be to our benefit, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah definitely. It doesn't, doesn't mean we need fewer people it just means that those people do different stuff and probably spend more of their time doing, doing the clever stuff rather than the mundane stuff so can you, I wrap you know, the worry is that it sorry go, go okay. I, I was going to say the worry is that obviously you know you've only got the advantage in doing it for a while and then it becomes the norm yeah. um, it's a great leveling effect isn't it of technology
1: so can you wrap all this up in a strategy for people that want to try and not get screwed by Facebook do okay on Google and take advantage of AI oh. <laughs>
2: God, I think if I had that, I'd uh, yeah, I, uh, probably, but probably not on this podcast right now. Um, yeah, ask me, ask me in three months.
1: I'll oh, have uh, by then. You'll have to start again.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll come back and do it again, and I'll and I'll and I'll be saying, "Oh God, think you know." Right now, we're talking about how different it was 10, 10 years ago. You know, what's ten years going to feel like in six months' time? Um, it's a totally yeah. different generation. Um, you know, without sounding like I'm sort of excessively optimistic. I I think it comes back to the content, doesn't it? It comes back to, you know, this is is why I feel really optimistic as an SEO working with content teams now rather than probably five years ago. Because I think the language that we need to be saying to content creators and editors is probably much more interesting and closer to their journalistic instincts and principles and it's, then it's been in any point in the five, in the last five years. We're, we're no longer asking people to write things which feel unnatural or excessively laden with keywords in the opening paragraph that they would never ever write in print. You know, we we're, we're, we're asking them to, if you look at some of the stuff that Google's um, talking about around um, expertise and experience and authority and trustworthiness, that plays straight into the hands of quality brands, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it actually says, well, you know, do leverage your print reputation and the fact that your, you know, your, your gardening editor's done this for 35 years. Yeah. That's the sort of thing that is a real bonus for, for quality content publishers. So I feel greatly reassured about working with, with content creators. I, th- I think it plays straight, it plays it plays more to our strengths than than, than not.
0: So thank you very much to Stuart for that. Thanks, Peter, for doing the interview. I know you enjoyed mm, it. Joy. Um And one more time, thank you so much to Glide Publishing Platform for the support for the entire series. As mentioned, if you do want to know what life without having to build a CMS looks like, you can check out gpp.io. And we're going to have to figure out what life without Media Voices looks like for, for at least a couple of weeks, uh, as we are coming to the end of the Big Moises series. And we're now coming up to a, effectively, what, late summer hiatus? Yeah, summer yeah. week summer break but yeah thank you to everyone who's stayed with us for the entire big noises series it's been a pleasure you know we might revisit this format again in the future we're always trying new things on mini voices but for now thank you so much for listening and have a great summer
1: bye